Well, good morning. Welcome to East Lake. So glad that you're here today. We are continuing our Just This One series. Uh, we took a little bit of a, a break last week with the guest speaker, but uh, if you're a guest with us, you picked a great day to come check us out. Week four of the series, um, which means that uh, you can always go online and catch up if this stuff interests you or you missed it or whatever. Um, and uh, we've got a website that we record all these. And uh, hello to our friends in Walla Walla who are also watching this online too. But uh, excited that you're here. Um, it's been a series on miracles, but it's interesting because um, it's a unique take on miracles. And uh, let, let, me, let me start off by, by talking about this real quick. Um, there's a phrase that I remember saying as a kid. I don't remember like ever learning it specifically. Like I, nobody ever like taught me this type of thing, but I do remember saying it. And I've heard, I have four kids at home. Uh, I've heard my kids say it and I don't remember teaching them to say it. So it must just be like a DNA thing or something like that. Uh, but it, it shows up whenever my dad would come home from a vacation or my parents or whatever, and they would walk through the door. And my first phrase would be, oh, daddy's home. <clears throat> quickly followed up with this phrase, we miss you, what did you bring us? That was, our, that was our second automatically, it just flows out with, we've missed you, what did you bring us? Um, I, I remember saying it, and then I remember my dad had the same dumb joke. Do you ever, your dad ever have the same dumb joke every single time when something would happen? And I, I'd walk in, or he'd walk in, I'd say, what, you know, we miss you, where'd you bring us? And he'd say, I brought you me, right? And you'd be like, dad, that's such, so lame, come on. We know, we know that you brought more than just you, right? And then he would laugh and do his thing, and he'd act like I got, you know, nothing going on. And then he'd go into his room and, and, you know, unpack whatever thing and come out with, woo, hey now, I think that the computer might be on. You might want to push the mute button on that. Um, that's just a weird thought. Um, uh, and, uh, I, and, and he would act like, you know, uh, here's what I brought for you. And it was typically some piece of candy that he bought in the airport or, or Biscoff if he forgot or something like that. And then he would give that to me and, and then we would have that. So um, when, I, when I come home now, whenever I'm, I'm on, on a trip and coming back, all, all of a sudden I'll, I'll say, uh, you know, my kids, will say, we, we miss you. What did you bring us? And I'll say, I brought you me. And uh, my kids are always like, and your presence is presence enough, Dad, right? Um, I'm just kidding. They never, ever say that. I was, uh, have I not talked about how bad my kids are before? I feel like I've covered that clearly. Um, no, I'm just, uh, it is interesting, though. That's our, that's our initial take. That's our initial thing is we're so glad that you're here, but like in the same breath and in the same moment, like what do you, what do you have for us? And what do, you, what, what, do I, what do you have for me? And what do I got to do to get it? That's our, like, our big thing. And unfortunately, what happens is when we um, uh, enter into this faith journey, it's a relationship with a heavenly father. And our, our attitude towards that, at least in, its, in, in, in an immature level, at the very beginning or perhaps for far too long, it's, uh, it becomes a matter of, you know, God, you're so great. Um, dear heavenly father, this is our prayer. Dear heavenly father, thank you for this great day. Yeah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Now that we've got that covered, um, what do you have for me and how do I get it? And, and we're always on this discovery warpath of, what do I got to get the thing that God wants me to get? In fact, if you want to write a really good best-selling, if you want to make a lot of money writing a religious book, write about how God has things for you, and here are seven steps to get it. Those things sell like crazy. It's amazing. Um, theology's a little in question, but in terms of sales, you're in good shape. So that's been an obsession with us, but we know it's a sign of uh, we know it's a sign of immaturity in a relationship because we are grown up enough to know uh, this basic truism or principle of life. It's impossible to have an authentic relationship with someone from whom you're always trying to get something. It's really hard to have a relationship with people. 
You know what the problem that rich people have? And I I don't know this for sure. Like, I I haven't experienced this. This is what I've heard from rich people. Anyways, um, they're always questioning why uh, the legitimacy of a friendship. Do you love me because I have social and you want to be around me because of the social influence that I provide you or a lifestyle thing that you can't get any other way? And, And there's awkwardness in that and everybody's measuring their words and everybody speaks really good things. They're whispering into the ear of the king all of the things that the king wants to hear, right? Um, and then they, then at the very beginning, maybe they, they can, you know, they're, uh, self-aware enough to know that this only, this person's only saying this because they have to, or because they want something from me, but eventually like they believe their own story and it gets, it gets awkward and it gets weird. And it's like, Ooh, it's, it's, it's gross. It's an icky kind of nasty side of the perspective of real relational dynamics. And we know this looking on this side of things. Um, that if you're always just wanting something from somebody, it is really, really hard to have an authentic and genuine relationship with them if you're always wanting something from them. So translating that into kind of, if, 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 if we can agree, if we're nodding in principle, that that's definitely true. Uh, and then if we go, okay, well, what does that have to say factor into our, our like real life stuff with a, with a relationship with the Heavenly Father? Then, then if, if that's like, okay, we're gonna connect some dots today. My goal is to, to walk through a miracle uh, that helps kind of make that reality for us. And, and when I say walk through it, um, this series has, has been looking at uh, miracles as they take place in John's version of the life and the teachings of Jesus. So um, he writes the, what's called the fourth gospel. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke have already been written. Later on, John in his old age probably is pr- approached by some people within his church community and says, we don't want the stories that you have of Jesus to die with you. Please write these things down for us. Tell us about the person uh, that you knew whose name was Jesus. And so he begins to do that. But it's interesting, when you read the book of John, it's, it's formatted around what we call seven signs, the seven signs of John. He'll, he'll go through and he'll talk about a miracle and he'll, he'll say the first sign uh, of Jesus uh, w- was this, this wedding at Cana that, that was um, where he turned water into wine. The, the second sign was this. Uh, and, 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 and it's all kind of paralleled in it. And then at the very end, he also says, hey, um, there were so many different miracles that he performed that are not contained in this book. These seven have been selected for a purpose and for a reason. I have an agenda in why I pick these and why I'm writing these for you. It's not just that here's all of the things he ever did. This is a selection of what he did, but I wrote these with this purpose in mind. And he gives us what's, a, what's called like a thesis statement or a summary statement or whatever in chapter 20, verse 31, where he says, listen, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have something. I wrote these so that you'll believe the same things that I believe currently about Jesus. Now, here's the benefit that I have. I got to see and, and experience these things. I'm passing them along to you so that you don't fall into the assumption that thinking, oh, disciples had this great amount of faith, like this, their, their ability to believe that Jesus was uh, who he says he was, that he's the Messiah, that, he's all this, that, he's, that he is the expression of the Son of God. He is, he, is the, he is God in human form. He's like, that would take an immense amount of faith if I didn't have all of these things to go off of. But my faith isn't all that great because look at what I've done. It's not like this will, like if you saw the things that I saw, you'd probably come to the same conclusion that I did. So therefore, I'm, tell, I'm writing these things down so that you'll see them and, and, or, or hear my story about it. And depending on how much you trust what I have to say about it, perhaps you too will come to some conclusion, the same conclusion about Jesus that I have come to. So 
Uh, we've talked about the first three signs leading up to this. Today is the fourth sign. Uh, it's known as the feeding of the 5,000. It shows up in John chapter 6. It's a pretty familiar story, um, and it, uh, it is a story that, that like preaches well and it teaches well across all life stages. Um, that is not entirely true for everything that Jesus did and everything that Jesus taught. There are things, um, there are stories about Jesus' miracles uh, that we may talk about in the setting of, of an adult environment that we do not talk about in the kids' areas. That's on you, all right? So for instance, this one time Jesus uh, casts out demons out of this person, and then, and then somehow they go into like a bunch of pigs, and the pigs jump off a cliff. Your kids have never heard that story, okay? At least not from us. They may have heard it, but it's not from us, because we're like we'll let you kind of deal with that one, right? Um, but the feeding of the 5,000, it happens in early childhood. It happens in elementary. Listen, it, it looks good on screens. It looks good with puppets. It looks good on the flannel graph. If you grew up in church, it just, it preaches incredibly well. And if you've been a part of a church for any length of time, there is probably a familiarity with this story that may supersede any of the other six signs that show up in this. Like you've heard of the wedding in Cana, but that, you haven't looked at that in a while. With the feeding of the 5,000, you don't even have to be a church person to hear this story, right? To know kind of the, the, the parameters surrounding this story. So um, my challenge to you would be this. Don't fast forward, at least in your mind, to the end of this. As I read through this story, don't be the type of person who kind of knows what comes next and you already say it. That's like sitting next to the, somebody in a movie theater who like, has seen this movie like so many different times and they're like feeding, or at home probably, this is more likely, at home and, and, and you're with somebody who's like saying the next line before Adam Sandler says it and you're like, stop, you're not as funny as him. Don't do this. It's not, doesn't look good on you. So don't do that with this story. We're going to re-engage with this on a verse-by-verse -verse level and hopefully kind of see this with hopefully a little bit of fresh eyes. But defeating the 5,000 is uh, kind of where this is at. Now, I mentioned, uh, I think in week two or three, I can't remember exactly, um, but J John's timeline about where Jesus went and what he did is a lot more mixed up than what we see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That's why those are called the synoptic gospels, um, seen with kind of one eye, synoptic. Um, and, and John kind of stands alone. He's telling a story. He has the freedom of somebody who is, um, who, it's not that these things aren't true, but the way in which they are presented, he has an agenda. He has a, a, a trajectory for the story. He mixes in things in, and every time he wants to put Jesus at a, at a clash or a critique of the kind of established religious system, he sends them to Jerusalem. Um, and so he's coming back from Jerusalem in this version of the story. Chapter five, he was down there. Now it's chapter six, he's back up in Galilee, up north, follow the Jordan River up to the, the Sea of Galilee up in the north, and he's in that area, which has kind of been really home base for him. As much as we like to think of Jerusalem as kind of the central hub for Israel, uh, for Jesus in his time, he, he spent more of his time up, uh, up north in that way. So he's up there, uh, and a crowd has begun to kind of, he's six chapters in, he's several miracles in, legend is starting to grow about who Jesus is, what he's been able to do, and crowds are now beginning to form and become familiar, familiar with his name, and uh, he's kind of got that, that momentum piece, if you will, happening. So, chapter six, verse one, sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he'd performed by healing the sick. And the Greek word there that he saw, they, they saw them, they had been seen. It's kind of a passive 
um, a passive repetitive form. They had been seeing all of these things. This was for them the reason that they followed him. And this is the reason that shows up over and over again with John. People believed things about Jesus because of what they saw and because of what they heard. I believe some things about Jesus because of what I saw and what I heard. This whole thing is not they believed him because of the words that he said or because what, what they had heard about him or like all of this just like language and thoughts and he said something, he said, she said, whatever. It's we saw things we can't deny. That's why we believe. So don't, don't ingrain upon them a level of faith that they would be like, no, no, no. I didn't have great faith. I just saw people who couldn't walk and then they were walking. And I'm like, I don't get that. I should follow that more up. I, you know, I should, I should, I should interest, you know, be interested in that or follow along with that a little bit more. Verse three, then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. Now it's interesting because that feels like a little bit out of place, right? Um, the like that that doesn't it doesn't jive with the verse three the one that comes before it and the verse afterwards he's inserting something in there to kind of set the tone for what he's about to say, to speak upon okay so you need to understand that the Jewish festival of Passover was probably the biggest holiday of the year for them it would be like our Christmas time okay it was Christmas time that's when people travel that's when like like joy and good tidings and feelings and you go to Starbucks and it's red cups and it's like you know you there's a vibe around Christmas that you get you understand when it's Christmas time People are just more friendly. It's the most generous month of the year for nonprofits. Nonprofits take in about 50% of their income uh, in the month of December as opposed to the other 11 months of the year, right? Now, part of that's for tax reasons, but part of it's just because I feel like I should be generous around Christmas time. Good tidings, joy. I don't want to be Scrooge, right? So here you go. All right, that's the that's the the, the mode at which it's happening. Now, Passover, um, just for a quick history lesson, was the celebration of the remembering of when Yahweh God, the God of Israel, interceded on behalf of the Egyptian slaves, known as the nation of Israel, after 400 years of slavery. It, uh, came down and made his presence very visible. He was very active in the rescuing them out of this bondage of slavery and into it, like visible signs, plagues, uh, a cloud by day, fire by night. Like there's no denying that God was hands-on active in this rescue process uh, from them. Uh, and then ever since then had been sort of silent and, and a little bit more behind the, scene, behind the scenes and a little bit more of remember, let's all remember what God did for us. Us, but that you know, there's a lot of distance in terms of years of his obvious activity with us. And so Passover for them was, let's always remember how active the God of the universe was for our people at that time. And let us also then hope for a renewed commitment to his relationship with us. Let us also hope that he's not finished with us yet. So anytime Passover was taking place, it's reflective back, but it's also looking forward. And looking forward is we want liberty. We want liberation from the Roman occupation. Rome is at the height of its empire. Um, Jerusalem's kind of on the outskirts of the empire, but we're being taxed at a high level and we're not, our roads aren't getting better and our schools aren't getting better. What's happening with our tax money is it's being sent to Rome and they're the 1% are having these wealthy parties and we benefit nothing from it. And what are we going to do? We can't do anything about it. We want freedom from oppression. We've seen kind of how all of this thing works. We want to be the light of the world that we were called to be when he 
chose us and he gave us this promised land. We want to be the type of people who, like it says in the Old Testament, that are blessed so that we can be a blessing, that all of the nations will flock to Mount Zion and learn from us and learn about God and all of this. And yet we find ourselves in this difficult position. So there's, there's politics going on, there's motives going on, all of that's taking place when he just says the Jewish Passover festival was near. Verse 5. When Jesus looked up and he saw a great crowd coming toward him, he turned to Philip and he said this, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Throngs of people are making their way here and everybody sees this and they're out in the kind of the middle of nowhere. It's the other side of Galilee, right? Um, And so he turns to disciples, where are we going to feed all these people? To which Philip, I'm sure, is thinking, feed these people? What are you talking about? Like, we're not a... a, uh, a mission organization. Our mission is not, let's go and feed the people who are hungry. This is different. Like, I'm not sure exactly what it is, but I'm sure it's not that. And it says this, and this is offered as kind of a, um, an authorial, uh, there's, there's a, a way of writing this where like you understand the motives of your characters, right? He asked this only to test them. John is saying, reflecting on this, I realized at this moment, um, that is like the omniscience of the author or whatever. I, I, I think that Jesus said this to test Philip or to put him in this awkward spot for he had already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, uh, realistically, it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each person to have one bite. So the answer to your question, Jesus, real simply is just simply nowhere. Where are we going to find enough food? Where are we going to buy all this food? That's not even, even if there was a store possible, even if the finances were not an issue, there would not be enough food to feed all of these people in this way. Now, again, depending on your history with church and how often you're familiar with the story, this next part probably has been more romanticized than it actually was. Okay, so we're going to talk about the logistics of what's taking place here. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up and said, here's a boy, here's a lad with five small barley loaves and two small fish. Five barley loaves. Barley was barley bread was the, the food of peasants. It was the food of poor people. It was the food of college students. The modern day equivalent would be like, all we have are five top ramens and two sardines. What are we going to do with this? But how far will they go among so many? Jesus then said this, have the people sit down, which I would imagine like for the disciples for sure, but then also for some of the people who were like, had heard, like there were definitely probably people who had seen him do miracles. And then there were other people who were like, so you've seen him do some stuff, right? We haven't seen it, but we're here because we've heard about it. And we're heading down to Jerusalem anyways for this Passover thing. And we took like a little side detour because, you know, we got to see this new guy. And as soon as Jesus goes, all right, everybody sit down. Everybody's all, oh, here we go. Buckle up. <laughs> it's about to get awesome up in here. I don't know what he's going to do, but I'm excited to see it. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. He, like, tries to define this for us, which is kind of an interesting thing, because, like, there's no way that he would know exactly the number, and there's a couple of things uh, involved in this. He only counts the men, which, why? Sometimes in old, this time, old, the men are the only ones that count. That's possible, right? Um, the other part is, like, uh, this grand uh, idea of um, specific numbers, if you've ever been to an Americans game and they do that whole guess the attendance on the screens and, you know, the, the crowd's there and they're, you're, you're, you're pumped up, you're jacked up because it's back in season. You're like, ah, that's 7,000. They're like, 1,200. And you're like, oh, yeah, okay, that sounds about right, you know? 
we have, we have so little perspective on this. Like, I, because I, there's some discrepancy on, you know, one version has 4,000 and there's another one. Anyways, I just, I think he's going, there's a, a, tons of people. There's a lot of people. Not only that, there's 5,000 men and men, maybe the head of the household, maybe this, and there's, there's probably 15, 20, who knows what number it is. This is him saying there were so many people. Like, this is gonna be nuts. I don't know what he's gonna do. I also think this, um, that there could have been some, like, some foreshadowing and some symbology going on here um, because 5,000 men were, was the number that made up a Roman legion of soldiers. Um, so when they would say, we're going to send three legions down here to stuff this rebellion, we're going to send one legion over here, that they, were, they were talking in terms of a unit number size of 5,000 men. And perhaps in this scenario, as we're going to see, keep this in mind because we're going to see them kind of do something to try and make a political statement about him entering into Jerusalem. And if it would be a legion of people came in with him, there, there's, like a, there's like some stuff going on there. Anyways, verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves, he gave thanks, he prayed a prayer of blessing that was a Jewish prayer of blessing over barley bread that they would oftentimes pray. And it's almost as if he, he takes this and to give thanks, he would, be the, he would do the whole thing that you grew up, like your dad or mom or, or whoever, grandma or somebody would be like, all right, we're all gonna bow our heads and close our eyes, right? And we bow our heads and we close our eyes, except that there's 5,000 people here and five loaves of bread and, he's, and we've already talked about how buckle up, something's gonna happen here, which means that nobody closed their eyes at this point. <laughs> They did the whole thing that you did as a kid when you went to summer camp and the preacher was like, all right, everybody bow your heads and close your eyes and, and who here wants to accept Jesus in their heart? And you're like, one eye's open, kind of looking around, doing the whole scoping thing. Like, did, you know, who's, who's saying yes to this? This is crazy, right? That's what's going on here. I'm almost positive. I'm reading into it a little bit, but I don't think I'm far off, all right? He gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. Now, in the other versions, in Luke and Mark and whatever, um, Jesus passed it out to the disciples, and the disciples go and distribute it, and there's symbology there. But in this, in this one, the, the disciples are not involved, apparently. John says, the way I remember it, Jesus just, just made this thing happen. Now, I do want to mention at this point, uh, that there are a couple of ways to interpret whether this was genuinely a miracle of multiplication or if the miracle just looks something different. In fact, I even think I've talked about this before and presented the idea of some scholars believing that uh, because of the nature of the trip involved, people coming from all over, making their way to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, there is a good chance that many of them would have food with them because who goes out on a journey without preparing and thinking ahead, especially if you're driving somewhere, you want to have like the sunflower seeds, the soda, the whatever else ready to go before you get in the car um, and make this thing happen. But you didn't plan for other people. I didn't buy seeds for you. I bought them for me. So therefore, if, they have, if they're there and all, there's food in their pockets, but it's not out and ready to share, then perhaps this is an example of Jesus bringing this small boy who is, goes, I, have, I can help with a little bit of the solution. Kind of like, remember as a kid when your parents would be like fighting over money, and then you ran into your room and you got your piggy bank out, and you're like, mom, if we can't, you know, if we can't afford Christmas, here's a little bit of my money. And your parents are like, oh, now we feel horrible. Um, and now it's like, okay, maybe money's not the thing. Maybe, maybe now we should be generous. If this little boy can be so generous with what little he had, maybe we too can be more generous with others, right? And I know that, that I'm not trying to like dispel the miracle and not say that Jesus can't do miracles. I'm actually honestly saying perhaps if that was the case, that all he did was got rich people to share their extras with people who needed it, how is that any less of a miracle, uh, kind of? Do you know what I mean? Anyways, 
you're rich people, so it doesn't matter. So, okay, I'm just kidding. Um, all right, where are we at? Sorry, I lost my son. Oh, uh, okay. Next page, that's why. Verse 12. <clears throat> when they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And John records for us a very small glimpse of them actually piecing the dots together of what he's trying to do. For a brief moment, some of them begin to say, wow, who is this that we're dealing with? Now, the rest of the time, what we're going to figure out is they're obsessed with the sign. They're obsessed with what he had done. But in this case, for a brief moment, they go, they, 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 the, the magic trick has been done and it's over here. And then all of a sudden the eyes go back to like the person who just performed it. And they're like, maybe this is the prophet. Maybe this is the Messiah. We are on our way to Jerusalem to remember Passover, to pray and to hope that one day God will do something about the current situation we're in, that he would send a mighty warrior to rise up the nation of Israel and against all odds, take out our oppressors. Maybe it's him. Verse 15, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, in other words, knowing that it was within their capabilities to be like, we are, we are taking you now. Now that you can, we know you can do this, we are gonna take you into Jerusalem with us. And as a 5,000 people, legion of uh, army of witnesses, take him in and be like, this is the Messiah. This is the one we're waiting for. This is it. He has come to put us back politically where we need to be. And having, them, having him be worried that they are gonna use him for their own personal benefit. You do things that we don't understand. We could use you to get what we want, which is freedom and liberation and what all what all is entailed with all of that. Jesus would eventually make his way into Jerusalem with his disciples in tow, but not to be coronated as king, but to be crucified as a criminal. He knew their motives and it had very little to do with who he was and far more to do with what he could do for them. And as much as we would say, oh, they're trying to make you king, yes, but only because they thought you could do something for them. Again, always wanting the relationship, always wanting in this relationship something from them. There can be no genuine relationship when all it is is centered around wanting something from somebody. In this moment, they're acting like little kids running to the door. We've missed you. What do you have for us and how do we get it? That's what they've done. Verse 15, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come, make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. He removes himself from this thing. Um, and it's, 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 it's interesting because we can look at this and we can, we can John, and John's doing this effectively, trying to get us to understand the shallow nature by which these people have this perception of Jesus. Uh, and yet we have kind of this play out occasionally in our lives if we've ever said anything to the effect of, yeah, I was into the church thing once, but uh, I don't know. I just wasn't getting anything out of it. I was like religious for a while, but like I just stopped getting things out of it. The whole church thing, I used to go like a lot. I used to like be involved and I used to serve and give and I was in groups and all this, but then I just stopped getting things out of it. And so I just, you know, it's not that I'm not 
religious, and it's not that I don't love God, and I don't think that he exists, and I'm not, you know, whatever, but like, I just, it, that whole Sunday thing stopped being meaningful to me, and uh, the whole Bible thing, like I used to kind of be involved in reading it and discovering things about it, but then it just like I stopped getting something out of it, and so I just stopped, and we, we think that that's kind of like, it's not perfect, but it's not bad or whatever, and we fail to see, we, we see it's so obvious when John points it out in these people, and it's a little bit more difficult to see in our own way when we say those things about, oh, are we just in it to get something out of it? If all, if, if all we're obsessed with is not who he is, but what he can do for us, getting something from him, then perhaps we're all just kids racing to the door. Perhaps we're the kids racing to the door going, oh, we missed you. What do you have for us and how do we get it? All right, verse 25. Um, oh, let me, let me set this up. So he sends his disciples on their way first and foremost, and he basically puts them in a boat and gets rid of them as, as soon as possible because I think he's afraid genuinely that they're going to fall into the same trap and think about things the way that this crowd has been kind of moving towards. And so he's like, get out of here. I'll, I'll dismiss them. And then he does this whole, the whole scenario of him walking on the water. I'm not going to go into that, to, that, that, that part of the, the sign today, but um, you can read those verses. There's about 10 verses in there that talk about that. And now he's on the other side of the lake. He's tried to escape the crowd. And they hear about his whereabouts and they go and they chase him down. And verse 25 says, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And I put in out of breath because I feel like that's kind of where they're at. They're like, hey, hey, what are you doing here? That's crazy that that we're here like together. How weird is that? When did you get here? Like we're trying to act as if this is an accident and they're chasing him down. They're stalking him for what he can do for them, right? Jesus, verse 26, says this, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and, he had, and you had your fill. He calls them out on it. You're not doing this because you saw signs and now are trying to reconcile what do you do with a person like me? You were hungry. I created a solution for you. And now you're hungry again. <laughs> you're insatiable. All it is is an appetite issue. And you think I have a solution to the problem that you have and you missed the point of the sign. I mentioned this in week one in the first sign in the water into wine that John said we were very, I made a notation about how it was interesting that none of the disciples watched Jesus turn water into wine and think to themselves, guys, there's a business opportunity here. We have lots of water. If we could be turning water into wine, can you imagine the returns on investment for that? None of them saw this and thought, water into wine, I can just see it now. We'll have shops, we'll have cruise ships that go up and down the Columbia River, water into wine, would be great. Just kidding. Um, they saw it and were able to make the distinction about who are we dealing with. These people saw what he did and thought, how do we get more of whatever it is that he's offering? Verse 27, here's his response. After he calls them out very blatantly, do not work for, or in other words, don't waste your life. Don't waste the hours and the days of your life for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. He's using like this coded language a little bit. He's trying to kind of pull them back and be like, Don't waste your time obsessing over this stuff. It's not important. Verse 30, and here's their response. And I added added a couple things about the crowd. I wrote it in like a uh, 
uh, a way that you would read like a smoothie script so that you know who's talking so I don't have to say it every time. So um, inept crowd says this, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Keep in mind, they just saw him turn five loaves and two fish and feed multitudes of people. And now he says, didn't you miss the sign? You missed what it was pointing about who I am. And they go, oh, okay, okay, so that's really good. So, but what you're saying is really, that's difficult. So could you just do one more? Then we'll be good. Like if you could just do one more sign. Like we still have a few questions, a few issues. One more thing and then we'll believe. Which have we, in modern times with ourselves, have we ever said, God, here's my issue. I would be totally into the whole God thing if he would just do this one thing. If he would prove himself in this one way. So then here's their idea. Verse 31. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. And Jesus already knows where they're going with this. We need you to do one more thing. So our ancestors were in the middle of the wilderness and they had no food, but then like they woke up every morning and there was food. So it's, it's back to the food thing again. We just need one more thing from you. Yeah, it has to do with food. You guys... Perhaps it wasn't 5,000 men. It might have been 5,000 teenage boys is what's happening. (laughs) The obsession with food all of the time. This is their obsession with it. Could you do one little thing for us? And I think John is trying to paint this picture going, listen, you, you see the ridiculousness of these people in this approach. You know that there can be no true, genuine relationship. You see the shallowness of this, don't you? Isn't this obvious? When I was uh, on staff at Eastlake Church uh, in Bothell, which Kylie and I were there for a year right before this, when we went over there, the church was um, about, I don't know, three or 4,000 at the time in terms of weekend attendance. It was huge. And we had heard that uh, Matt Hasselbeck and his family, who was the quarterback of the Seahawks at the time, attended the church. We had never really, you know, seen him. It was just kind of like, you know, rumor that he was around or whatever. Um, and I remember I had become the, uh, at one point transitioned to become the, um, the family life pastor for all of the different kids areas in both campuses that we were doing. And so I'm in the kids' room, and I see on the, like the check-ins things come through and his two oldest girls are in my class, right? And so I'm like, okay, this is cool, right? And uh, trying to play it cool, trying to be whatever. It's totally normal, totally normal to have a multi-million dollar athlete, you know, Super Bowl, whatever. Anyways, then I remember one day looking over and Matt, who I've seen on TV, right? Sitting there, bald head, you can't miss him, six something for tall, whatever, waiting to pick up his kids, his two girls from class. And I'm the, I'm the new pastor. I'm their, I'm the, I'm their, his kids pastor. Like kind of cool, man. My head was really big at the moment. Right. So <laughs> I'm like strolling over going, Hey Matt, how's it going, man? Um, but I'm trying to like that weird dance of how do you, uh, like, I know why you're here. You're here to pick up your kids, not to talk to me about football. And how about that Rams game? Huh? You know, all this, <laughs> kind of stuff, and how awkward. 
like in that moment, the relationship is great. I'm pastoring his kids and he's just a parishioner at the church, right? He just is an attender in this, this, this zone. How shallow and awkward would it be for me to be like, hey, uh, I'm gonna need you to sign your kids out, even though nobody else does this. Um, so you're just gonna need to sign here and here and here and here. All of a sudden, it would not take him long to be like, oh, I see what's going on here. You want something from me, right? Uh, this is now like the, the relationship dynamic has changed. Uh, it's awkward. It's weird. If you always want something from me, there can be no real relationship. John points this out to people, to an audience reading this going, don't be like that. In fact, John would say that God did everything. He gave us everything he knew we needed when he sent Jesus in the flesh, which is why he begins his gospel is John chapter one, verse one. The Logos became the, the God of the universe became human form and moved into the neighborhood and became one of us. And we no longer have to wonder if God loves us. For God so loved the world, John, John again, that he gave his only begotten son to us. He gave us all the things. Here's, the, here's all the signs to point out how significant this was. And then for us to come and be like, yeah, but if you could just do one more thing. We've missed you. What did you bring us and how do we get it, right? Now, I do want to caution with this or provide this caveat. This is not like, so therefore, don't bring any prayer requests to God. Clearly, at other points in Scripture, he says, bring your request unto me. Like, ask, I, I want to know, like, if, dude, if your kid is hurting, you're like, God, I, I don't know where to turn. I don't have anything. I'm, I'm, I'm hurting financially. I need this. I need, this. I, need, I need help. I need help. He's like, I, I want to understand as a friend your concerns on this, but let's not base this relationship on it because that's a really shallow way of doing things. And again, there is no relationship. There can be no genuine authentic relationship. We know this when all we want is something from that person. Otherwise, you really have no use to me. Otherwise, nah. John goes, listen, guys, if I could use one of these signs to point you to the reality of the shallowness of that nature and invite you into a relationship of something significantly more, I want to do that. May we be the type of people who understand that relational dynamic and refuse to carry that into our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Not that we can't request and bring our thoughts and our request to him, but in, in, in a way that goes, listen, I know that you just do this stuff. I, I get it. But I, I, want, I, I want you to know that I want, to be, I want to be so centralized in my being that I'm going to be okay even when things are not okay. I'm, we're okay even when this is not okay. Back to his summary statement. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Life in his name. My prayer is that I would 
again, live in that same way where we're okay even when this is not okay. And my invitation to you is, I think that that's just a better way of doing a relationship with the Heavenly Father who loves you like crazy that he, John says he's already, we've already solved that. We've already figured that out. He so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. May we be the type of church, the type of people who live that out, who understand it, and who approach a relationship with the Heavenly Father who we don't have to question it anymore. We can just trust. We trust. Let's pray. Father, um, this, is, uh, this is difficult, and, uh, and we, we have probably gone through seasons of our lives where uh, that immaturity has kind of popped its head up, and we, we've kind of acted like that, and we get that, and we ask for forgiveness in that. We, we pray moving forward that we would be... Um, the type of people, it's not, you're not asking us to follow you blindly. What, what, we, what you're asking us is to trust that what you've done is enough. And when we look at it, John was convinced it was enough. And he, he gave us these signs that we would believe the exact same. He wrote about these things so that we would believe the same things. That it's not this great jump to, you know, this incredible amount of faith. But what else would you we do with this information? So give us the wisdom to know how to respond to this positively, to know what this looks like in our life, the courage to act on it in your name. Amen.